Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bible to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, and we're going to look at verses 33 to 48. Matthew 5, 33 to 48. Here then, the word of God. If you don't have a, a Bible, there's a Bible in the pew in front of you. It's a black hardcover Bible, and it's on, you'll find it on page 859. Page 859, if you have not looked at a Bible before, the big numbers are the chapter numbers. So if I say Matthew 5, 5 is a big chapter number, and then the verse numbers are the small numbers, okay? So Matthew 5, beginning in verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, because it is God's throne, or by the earth, because it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, because it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, because you cannot make a single hair white or black, but let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles, the pagan Gentiles, don't even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we praise you for giving us your word. Without your word, there is no life. Without your word, there is no light. Without your word, Father, all we have is death and darkness. But we praise you that you have given us your word. We thank you for the gift of the Bible. And we thank you for the passage here, Matthew 5, 33 to 48. And we thank you most of all for your son, our Lord Jesus Christ, whom we seek to know through the study of your word. We pray now that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things here in your word, that you would give us life according to your ways and turn our eyes from looking at empty things. Unite our heart to fear your name. Incline our hearts, Lord. Give us a desire for you and satisfy us this morning with your steadfast covenant, never giving up, never stopping, always and forever love that we might rejoice and be glad in you all the days of our lives. In Jesus' name, we ask for your help. Amen. Why do Christians want to show people God in their lives? Why do you want to show God 
in your life? Do you want to display God? Do you want to magnify God and give a picture of God to those around you? Christians do want that. But why do Christians want to do that even when life gets difficult? Why is it true that every Christian wants to display God? The answer is, one of the answers is, it's because God loves to show up and show off for the good of his people and out of his love for the world. God loves to show up and show off for the good of those he shows himself to. It's not a, self, it's not a selfish thing where God is just vain in his seeking his own glory. It's an overflow of love. God loves himself and his glory and his righteousness and his purity and his wrath and justice and all that God, God's glory is so wonderful that he, he spills it over in displaying for other people to see and enjoy him for who he is. God loves to show up and show off for the good of his people and out of love for the world. God's glory is present and, or when God's glory is present and when it's seen, it is the greatest good in the universe for everyone. Now, those are big theological thoughts that would take lots of sermons to unpack, and I'd be happy to do that at another time. I just say that by way of saying we love to display God in our lives, even when life is hard, right? Maybe even especially when life is hard, we want to show people the glory of God in our lives. The problem is that we face opposition from those who don't want to hear us talk about Jesus. They don't want to hear about the good news of Jesus Christ incarnated obedient, crucified, resurrected, and coming again. People want to talk about less controversial things. And you know what? That's not just on the outside. Because people don't like it, on the inside, we don't like the opposition, right? We don't like the uncomfortable conversations. We don't like the awkwardness. We don't like the tension. We rejoice in convenience, and we rejoice in safety, that's natural. We naturally rejoice in not gospelizing in the midst of persecution and opposition. We don't naturally rejoice in persecution and in opposition. We think it's crazy when people rejoice in persecution and in opposition. And yet in Matthew 5, 11 and 12, Jesus thinks we're crazy for thinking that's crazy. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 11 and 12, you are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven for that is how they persecuted the prophets who are before you. Jesus thinks it's crazy when you don't rejoice in persecution and, be, and, and, and feel blessed. Now, someone's wrong, right? Either us or Jesus. Someone is off and we have a pretty good idea of who that might be between the two groups. Here's the main goal for this morning. How do we get to Jesus' mindset, where we rejoice and are glad, where we feel blessed and privileged in the midst of opposition? Because I told you when I preached on that a few weeks ago, if you get this, in a sense, you're unstoppable. What stops us from blessing and gospelizing is the fear and the uncomfortability of opposition. Amen. But if you don't have that, and you're not scared of that or death, you literally have nothing else to hold you back. So how do we get there? Um, the main goal of this passage in Matthew 5, 33 to, 30, to 48 is this. Hunger for a righteous honesty, gentleness, and love so that you make peace wherever God sends you. 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. You go make peace with people. They don't want that peace. They don't want that righteous peace. And so they oppose you for sharing the gospel or for trying to confront sin and help the neighbors and the, the neighborhood and the society. You try to speak peace and righteousness there with Christ in the center and the gospel in the center. People don't like that. And so you'll get persecuted and opposed. And yet God is telling us this morning from this passage, you need to hunger and thirst for a righteous honesty, a righteous gentleness, and a righteous love so that you make peace wherever God sends you because he is sending us into a hostile world to make peace. So let's look at these three, hunger for a righteous honesty, hunger for a righteous gentleness, and hunger for a righteous love. Those are our three points this morning, okay? And those would be the three sections in Matthew chapter five. So first of all, hunger for a righteous honesty. Look at chapter 5, verse 33. It says this, again, you have heard that Jesus is saying, again, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. Question, should you keep your oaths to the Lord? Yes or no? Should you break your oaths? No, right? So we agree with Jesus. Jesus is saying what the ancestors have said. You shouldn't, you've heard that said. Now in Numbers 30, verse 2, it says this, it says, when a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to put himself under an obligation, he must not break his word. He must do whatever he has promised. To swear, one commentator has written, to swear does not mean to curse or use bad words, but to affirm the truth of a statement saying, I, this is true, while calling on God to judge oneself if it is in fact untrue. So I say, I swear I did not hit your car. I, I, I swear, and God can judge me if it's untrue. That would be swearing or putting yourself under an oath. And Jesus is quoting the answer. You've heard it said to the ancestors, do not break your oaths, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. Then Jesus says in verse 34, but I tell you, don't take an oath at all. That's strange. Don't take an oath at all. Either by heaven because it is God's throne or by the earth because it is his footstool or by Jerusalem because it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head because you cannot make a single hair white or black. Now on the surface, this sounds like a contradiction. The Bible says it's okay to take oaths and when you take your oaths, you shouldn't break them, you should keep them, right? And Jesus says, I tell you, don't take oaths at all. It sounds like a contradiction. Is the Bible contradicting itself? Is there error in scripture? Was Jesus wrong? Or is the, is the other parts of the Bible wrong? No, it's not. That's not the case here. What we're saying here, now, if you took these as two absolute statements without any qualifications, it would be a contradiction. We need to admit that. But if you're you have to want the Bible to contradict, to, to be able to see that. As Christians, we believe the Bible does not contradict itself. So what we're saying here is even though the statements on the surface are contradictory, if you don't push them to their absolute sense, they're not contradictory. So in other words, sometimes Jesus tells you, um, in Matthew 23, he talks about oaths. In Galatians 1.20, Paul takes an oath before the Galatians in his writings. They're not, he's not disobeying scripture there. Jesus is not giving us an absolute statement 
that all oaths are wrong, he's getting at a deeper point. So I want you to see what that deeper point is. It's not a contradiction. What is he saying then? He says, again, going to verse 34, um, don't swear by heaven because it's God's throne. Don't swear by earth because it's God's footstool. Don't swear by Jerusalem because it's the city of the great king. What does he mean by that? You have to kind of know the situation culturally, what's going on here in Israel in the first century. Here's what's going on. Um, Craig Blomberg writes, the situation described is one in which many Jews viewed swearing by heaven, by earth, Jerusalem, or even by one's head is less bi- as less binding than swearing by God. Okay, do you guys get that? So if I swear on God, if I swear by God that this is true, that's really important. But if I swear by heaven, ah, that's not as important as God. So when I tell you something, like, is PJ telling the truth? Wait, did he swear by God or did he swear by heaven? Or did he swear by earth? Or did he swear on his own head? So there was a culture there that swearing by God is really important and swearing by earth or by heaven or by your head or by Jerusalem is less important. So you're not, it's not as serious as of an oath. Do you get that? So now listen to what Jesus is saying. He's saying, if that's true that they think that in the culture, Jesus is saying, don't swear by heaven because it's God's what? It's God's throne. So you're saying, well, I'm not swearing by God. Yeah, but you're swearing by God's throne. So guess who's all up in the middle of that swearing? God. And if you say, well, I'm not swearing by God. I swear, I swear by earth. Well, earth is his what? Footstool. So if you swear by earth, you're still swearing by who? By God. So it's just as serious. Or if you say, you know what? Um, I swear by Jerusalem. Well, Jerusalem is the city of the great king, the great Messiah. And the Messiah is all about, is, is, is displaying whose glory? God's glory. So if you swear by Jerusalem, you're still swearing by God. So don't, don't take oaths at all. Don't, don't, don't play with this silly, foolish, and I would even say satanic system of playing with truth. As if there are standards of confidence and lack of confidence depending on what you're swearing by. That is not, that is silly and it's satanic. Because later he's going to say, anything more is from the evil one. Anything more than simple telling the truth is an evil one. Let's not play the game of, oh, was it a white lie or what level of lie? If it was a lie, it was a lie. And if it's the truth, it's the truth. And so he's getting at something more than just don't take oaths. He's not just giving you a rule. He's getting at the heart of being honest, a righteous honesty. Okay? So the point here, again, is not that you could never technically take an oath. I served on juries before in the past, and, you know, someone, you have to raise your right hand and repeat after the bailiff and they, they, um, or the, the court uh, clerk, and they, they have to swear you in. If you're a Christian, you can't say, I can't take oaths. Jesus said, that's, you're not disobeying God if you take an oath in court. That's not the point of what he's saying here, okay? His point is in verse 37. What's the point? 37 says, says this, but let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no. Anything more than saying what you mean is from who? The evil one. And Satan is the father of lies. Anything more is from the evil one. Mean what you say and always be a person of integrity and honesty. So why do we use oaths and promises? 
Generally, we use oaths and promises. When, when we use it in the wrong way, why do we use it in the wrong way? We use oaths and promises to say, I really am going to keep this one. And that might be good to raise the confidence that you're really going to keep it. But what does that say about all your other words? That when I don't take the oath, I might not keep this one, right? And Jesus is saying, oaths are supposed to be there to bring God in the middle of a statement, but you have now used it as a way of increasing confidence, meaning that when you don't use it, you have decreased confidence in people, or people's confidence is decreased in your word. Because now you need to promise to make them really believe you, because if you don't promise, you're not really trustworthy or believable. And that is satanic. That's from the evil one. Oaths and promises should never increase one's confidence in your word. It shouldn't increase their confidence. Because you should be someone with righteous honesty who is always keeping your word. Your, your yes means yes, and your no means no. You're always honest. Now, I want to point out that this verse, more than any other verse in the last two weeks, has caused me to repent before God in a good way. And it's just been, it's been a blessing for God to work this in my life. So you could, you could sin in this way in unintentional ways. And here's what I mean by unintentional. So I had to ask a few different people in the last two weeks for forgiveness at different points, like right away as, as the situation unfolds. But I would say something like, um, that like I, I missed the lunch with one of our church members. We scheduled a lunch, several weeks, and I totally forgot. I'm here in the office with Barbara. We're working through all this stuff, um, administrative stuff. And then I see my phone with a text, like, where are you? And uh, this person's at work, and they have a small window for their break. And I was like, oh, no, I forgot. And so I said, sorry. And I just said, sorry, at first. And then as I sat down on my chair, I thought, wait, sorry is for, like, mistakes, honest mistakes. I actually didn't obey God. I said I was going to be there. Did I get there? No. Was my yes, yes? No. I said, yes, I'll be there, and I wasn't. So I said, you know what? I sinned against God, and I sinned against this brother. So I asked God for forgiveness, and then I called the brother back, or to, and I said, can you forgive me? I said, sorry, but, um, and that's a whole other thing I talk about in premarital counseling, among other things. Sorry is for apologizing non-sins. Forgiveness is for sins, and there's a reason for that theologically. It really helps your Christian growth, but it's another time. The point here is I asked God for forgiveness, and I asked this brother for forgiveness because I sinned. And it wasn't intentional. It was like, yeah, I'm going to set up this schedule and he's going to be there and I'm not going to be there. I'm going to laugh at him. You know? So it wasn't, it wasn't this diabolical, intentional, ha-ha, you know. It wasn't, it wasn't that. I wasn't mad at the person. But it was unintentional, but it was still sinful. Okay, I want, you to, that, I want you to understand that. You can sin unintentionally and still, it's still sin. So we we want to focus on the heart because we don't want just outward obedience, right? We want, because you could obey on the outside and sin on the inside. But Satan has a, had to swing the pendulum the other way, that as long as our inside is okay, even if we're actually not keeping the command, we're not sinning because our heart was okay. And that's not right either. It has to be both the word and the, it has to be the heart and the action. It's not just heart, it's not just action, it has to be both. So you could have the right heart and still sin if your action was disobedient, as mine was. And so there was an unintentional sin there, but it was still a sin. And so... Um, I had to text or talk to the brother, Matthew 5, 37, I sinned against God, I sinned against you, can you please forgive me for sinning? Application here for you, brothers and sisters, always tell the truth and mean what you say so that you never have to swear to increase your credibility. Ask forgiveness from God when, others, when you break your word to others. 
Be slow to make commitments if you can't keep them, even side comments. Uh, uh, the second one um, was we had our city group um, neighborhood barbecue this past Friday night. We had all these neighbors here, and one of the members said, hey, can you do something um, by tonight? And I said, yes, just real quick. Text back, yes, I'll do it tonight. And then I didn't check my phone again for the rest of the night. And then in the morning, I saw the text and thought, I said specifically I would do it tonight. I didn't do it tonight. Had to ask for forgiveness again. And that was just this past Friday, just in the, in the but it went, again, not intentional, but still sinful, still sinning, still needing God. So be, even on side comments, like oh, a real quick statement, yeah, I'll take care of it, right? And you say when you're going to take care of it and you don't, that's your word. That's your yes or your no. You have to keep them. And if not, you have to ask for forgiveness from God and from those you sin against, which is why, by the way, side note for our church, I almost never schedule a meeting with you on Sunday at the door. So, you know, like, if we're at the door, at the end, you're greeting, you're like, oh, yeah, can you do this this week? I'm saying, you need to email me or text me at some other point. Because if I say yes right now, I'm going to totally forget. And my yes has to be yes, and my no has to be no. So just be aware of that. Um, be honest at your work, your workplace. Be honest at school. And be honest with all of your neighbors and even with your church family. Church family, let's not minimize when people don't keep their word. Let's not hit them with a hammer right? So if someone in your church doesn't keep the word, don't take the Bible and just, you know, swing at them and be like, Matthew 5.37, you know, and uh, knock them out of the park. Don't do that. Um, at the same time, so, so don't satanically guilt trip people. At the same time, don't minimize it either. If someone asks you forgiveness for sin, don't say, oh, it's okay. Don't worry about it. We're just talking about you sinning against God in heaven. Is, is it okay to not sin against God? Is it okay to, ah, don't, I know what you mean by don't worry about it. I just, I'm trying to disciple you in your words that you use. Don't say don't worry about it. Sin is a big deal, even unintentional sin. We take it seriously because we take God seriously and because we love God and we love our neighbors. So as a church family in our culture, let's, let's, let's confront each other on sin. Let's, t- let's handle it. Let's not just be awkwardly tiptoeing around it. At the same time, let's be gracious because once you start get, getting sensitive to this, there's going to be a lot of confession going around in all kinds of directions in the church. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Children, children, even if you managed, Aiden, listen to me over there. Aiden is three months old. <laughs> Aiden, listen. Even if you managed to trick your parents, you never trick God. And God will judge you. Lying is never fully, um, it's never fully, You never fully get away with a lie, even if you do on earth. Parents, your kids rightfully expect your yes to mean yes and your no to mean no. So parents, and I'm speaking to myself more than anyone else, when you say you're going to do something for your kids, you do it. Or you ask for forgiveness from God and from them for not doing it. But as parents, kids are just learning from us. We so easily say, okay, I'll take care of it. And so be careful there, parents. Singles, you may be held a little less closely accountable if you're not married or having young children asking you constantly to make statements and, and, and commitments. But you must, even though you have, you're not as closely accountable with a constant spouse or child asking for commitments, you are not to be less careful in keeping your word. You are to be just as careful. Non-Christian, if you're not a Christian, really for everyone, Revelation 28, 21.8 says this, all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. In other words, like my grandma always liked to tell me growing up, liars go to hell. 
It's true. Liars go to hell. And you know what? Just based on my confession from the last two weeks, I deserve to go to hell for breaking my word. Liars go to hell. The good news is Jesus never lied. He never lied. His yes was always yes. His no was always no. When he told you that he would die for you, he would die for you. If he told you he was going to save you, he saved you. If he told you he's going to send his Holy Spirit to, to comfort you and transform you, he's going to send his Holy Spirit to comfort you and transform you. If he says he's coming again, guess what? He's going to come again. If he said he's going to guide and shepherd the church and on this rock he will build his church and not even the gates of hell will stand against it, he will build his church. Jesus never breaks the slightest commitments, the smallest commitments that he makes. He has never broken his word. And so even though we have, as we trust in him, we can find forgiveness for our lies and go to the new earth and avoid the lake of fire that I deserve and that liars deserve. And we're all liars. We've all lied. This is a righteous, so this righteous honesty is what we need. It surpasses the world's standard and religion's standard. And sadly, many Christian churches' standards as well. All right, so hunger for righteous honesty so that you make peace wherever God sends you. But secondly, not just honesty, not only righteous honesty, we want surpassing righteousness that surpasses the scribes and Pharisees, not just honesty. Secondly, gentleness. Hunger for righteous gentleness. Hunger for a righteous gentleness. Verses 38 to 42. Look at verse 38 with me. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, this is said in at least three passages in the Old Testament, Exodus 21, 24, Leviticus 24, 20, and Deuteronomy 19, 21. These verses in the Old Testament speak of just retribution, righteous retribution for crimes, and it's to be executed um, societally. So we're talking about law court here, right? If I, if I um, wreck your, if I hurt your animal, I need to give you I need to do reparations for that animal. If I murder someone in your family, then I, at least in the Old Testament, and I would even argue in the New Testament, under New Covenant as well, deserve the death penalty for murder. In other words, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a donkey for a donkey, a life for a life. It's just the, it's the, it's not, um, what do you call it? Um, the, The punishment has to fit the, the crime, okay? The punishment shouldn't be over extreme. It shouldn't be under extreme. It should be right with the crime. That's what an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth means, and that still carries on today. This was to restrict escalating cycles of retaliation due to an unjust penalty. So if you steal my donkey and I punch your child and then you, you murder one of my family members, what hap- you know, what, what's happening? It's just escalating, right? It started with a little thing and it just gets bigger and bigger. So there's a, there's a just retribution here to, to minimize escalating retaliation in society. That's what's going on here. This is judiciary and not merely personal, okay? The mindset of the day was, according to John Frame, how far can I get back without breaking the law? How much can I hurt somebody with it still being an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth? The Pharisees used this law to justify and limit individual vengeance. John Stott says, well, let's read on. So that's verse 38. Look at verse 39. What does Jesus say, though? But Jesus says, I tell you, don't what? Don't resist an evildoer, or don't set yourself against an evildoer, or don't retaliate against 
an evil doer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, what should you do? Turn the other to him also. And as for the one who wants to sue you take, and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone wants to, anyone forces you to go one mile, one of the Roman centurions who have the legal right in the Roman Empire to force you to go with them and translate for them in your language and culture as they travel, you have to go with them one mile. That's the Roman law, Roman custom. Jesus says, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you. Don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. John Stott calls this the principle of non-retaliation. Don't get revenge personally as a vigilante. It's not your own personal justice according to your own rule of law. Don't even get revenge to satisfy the resentment and bitterness and ill will that you have toward the evildoer who violated you and even your rights. The point here is don't retaliate out of, and this is, how we, this is why we retaliate, because we're self-centered. We're not God-centered. God cares about justice. God cares about righteousness. God cares about the oppressed. We're not talking about disregarding the oppressed or injustice. We're talking about personal self-centered justice and, um, and, and responding. The core is don't get even from your own personal self-centeredness. Now he gives us four pictures here. If someone hits you on the right cheek, right cheek, turn to the left as well. Now if someone hits you on the right cheek, so all of you are facing me this way. Um, your right side is over here, right? So if, I, if generally when someone hits someone on the right cheek, it would be with the right hand. Now, how can I hit you on the right cheek from the right hand? I would have to backhand you. So in other words, this hitting on the right cheek was not someone attacking you to, to, to really get your physical harm. This is an insult. This is an insult. This is a belittling of your personhood. The ones who usually got backhanded were children. And women, sadly, sinfully. And so if a man even backhanded another man, in one sense he was, in that culture, belittling his manhood, calling him like a little kid or a woman in that regard, in that culture. And so Jesus is saying, if a man came up to you as a man and gave you, you know, and, and just belittled you with a backhand, Jesus is saying, you know what you need to do as a real man? You know what a real man should do? Turn the other cheek. What? A real man? Jesus, we're talking about manhood here. You know, like, do you know what a real man is, Jesus? Jesus is saying, if someone characteristically insults you, don't insult back. Just receive the insult. In, 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 now, this is very important. In no sense, one New Testament commentator writes, in no sense does verse 39 require Christians to subject themselves to or others to physical danger or abuse. Nor does it bear directly on the, passive, the pacifism just war debate. It's not talking about that. So we're not saying if someone's getting abused or oppressed or are in physical danger, we don't care. Like, hey, just, just take it. Just turn it over. Just turn your other cheek. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about physical abuse and danger. We're talking about insulting here. We're talking about belittling here. Now, there's a physical aspect to a backhand, but we're not talking about someone beating someone down. We're talking about them belittling their, their personhood with this insult. So to obey turning the other cheek means you could still call the police. You can still report someone for abuse. You actually not only could, you should. You must. But here, let me quote again, um, Craig Blomberg, he writes, not only must disciples reject all behavior motivated only by a desire for retaliation, but they must also positively work for the good of those 
with whom they would otherwise be at odds. So don't just take it passively, work for their good. Turn the other cheek. Now that's the first picture. There's another picture. Not only turn the other cheek, look at verse, the next verse. Verse 40. If someone wants to sue you and take your shirt, what else should you give him? Your coat. What is Jesus saying here? So here's someone suing you. They want your, your clothes. Jesus says, you know what? If they're unjustly, now this is talking about unjust. If they're unjustly suing you and they're just trying to impress you and they want your coat, you know what else? You, or you know what? They want your shirt. You know what else you should give them? So if I'm in court or someone's in court, they have a shirt and a coat on. They're being sued for their shirt. Or give me your shirt, you know. So you give me your shirt and Jesus says, you know what else you should give them? Your what? Coat, which means you're walking home half naked. In other words, shock and shame them with joy as you give them their cloak and as you leave the courtroom half naked. The point here is you're showing them how oppressive, how foolish, how out of line the person is for oppressing you. It's, it's like what Jesus said, um, or what Paul said in Romans 12, like, you know how you get right at your enemies? You put, you, 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 or we, we say kill them with kindness, right? Don't return evil for evil, but repay evil with what? With good. And in doing this, you are heaping burning coals on their head. <laughs> That's what Paul says in Romans 12. You want to heap burning coals on their head? And they're asking for your shirt? Give them your coat as well. And rejoice. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't retaliate. Rejoice. Be taken advantage of. And just rejoice. And expose their um, meanness, their oppression, by you shocking them with giving them your coat as well. Next one here, next picture. As for the one, uh, verse 41, if someone forces you to go with them one mile, go with him two. Again, you're forced by the government to do favors for the Roman oppressors. When they do this, surprise them with service as a translator and travel partner with joy. It's so inconvenient, right? And yet you do it with joy and gladness and a genuine desire. Oh, you need help? Let me help you. And you're, you're translating for the Roman soldier as you're going, oh, your one mile is up. No, no, I'm gonna go with you too. I'm here to help. I'm here to help my oppressor. You surprise them with service. You repay evil with good. You turn the other cheek. You give your coat. You go the extra mile. And lastly here in terms of this, this um, section, look at verse 42. Give to the one who asks you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Not just giving to every person without discerning what really helps. That's not what it's saying. Um, again, Craig Blomberg writes, in verse 42, Jesus calls his followers to give, those, to give to those who ask and not turn away from those who would borrow. He presumes that the needs are genuine and commands us to not ignore them. But he does not specifically mandate how best we can help. So some want to say, well, don't give them money because it's not helpful. There's a genuine debate on how to help. We're not solving that debate today. What we're saying is you need to help and not turn away from them. Does that make sense? As a Christian, you have to care. As Augustine rightly noted, the text says, quote, give to everyone that asks, not everything to him that asks. You see the difference? Give to everyone that asks. That's what the text says. Give to everyone that asks, not give everything to him that asks. That asks. So don't just give him everything he wants, but give him something. Care for him is the point. All right? And so that's what God is calling us to do. He's calling us to care and really be gentle. He's calling us to gentleness. He's not, he's, he's saying when you get slapped on the cheek, John Frame says, the slap on the cheek is a traditional insult, not a threat to life and limb. 
Because later on in Exodus 22, verses 2 and 3, God is against vengeance, but he is for self-defense. You're saying, what about self-defense? Genesis 20, or Exodus 22, 2 and 3 says, if you're getting robbed at your house at night, I'm paraphrasing now, you gotta check. Okay, everyone here, later on check if I'm telling you correctly here. I'm gonna go off memory here. Um, if someone's robbing you at night and you kill them, you're not wrong. I'm not saying modern day, I'm talking about what Exodus 22 says, okay? Um, you're not wrong, but if the sun rises and you kill him, then you're in trouble. What does that mean? I don't know exactly. But, but it does mean that there's a, there's a place for self-defense somewhere in there. I mean, I have ideas of what it means, but we just don't have time to talk about that now. Okay? The point here is God is um, not against injustice, but he is saying that you must be gentle even when you're being abused. John Stott says this. This is what Bonhoeffer termed a visible participation in the cross. You're, you're participating in the cross as you get slapped again, as you get sued, as you walk the extra mile, as you give to the poor person who might be abusing your compassion. You are, you are visibly participating in the cross. Amen. Here's how Peter put it. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. When he was reviled... He did not what? Revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he trusted him who judges justly. And so must we. So must we. John Stott also writes, this depicts rather a strong man whose control of himself and love for others is so powerful that he rejects absolutely every conceivable form of retaliation. It's not personal for them. You get insulted, you get attacked for being a peacemaker, for loving Jesus, and they get mad at you, don't take it personal. Don't, your, your, your self-control, your gentleness is so powerful that you don't need to retaliate. You trust God, and you could actually not only take it, you could turn right around in the middle of them insulting you, you can serve them. Amen. You can bless them. So brothers and sisters, accept getting taken advantage of. Rejoice when you're disrespected and embarrassed and taken advantage of for righteousness sake. Use those moments to make peace and express compassion to the oppressors. Because guess what? The oppressors are needy. I know a lot of people don't like to hear that, but it's true. They need God. They need repentance. They need grace. Bless those who sue you. Pay your taxes to the government willingly and gladly and help and be helpful to those who take from you. Even parking ticket officers. Give to those in need and don't pinch your pennies or be stingy. Always be generous and seeking to help all people. Pour your life and resources out as a drink offering for the good of others, just like Jesus. So gentleness is power under control, brothers and sisters. For a church family, what does this mean for us as a church? Guard from being a, a community of complaining Verbal retaliation and bitterness. You know how Christians get retaliation? We complain. You know how we get retaliation? We get bitter. We complain to fellow Christians. In this church, let us not be, let us not cultivate a culture of complaining. Rather, let us cultivate a culture of gentleness, of humility, of love, of service. That doesn't mean we ignore injustice. It doesn't mean we don't call out unrighteousness. We fight for righteousness publicly, and we are, peace, we are peacemakers. But let us not encourage personal vengeance and bitterness, even as we protect and serve each other. 
That's a fine line, right? You need wisdom for that, right? So pray for wisdom. If you're not a Christian, understand this. Vengeance is God's. It's not that God doesn't care, but you need to recognize that if God gave everyone what they deserved, he would give you and I what we deserve. And sinners deserve what? The penalty of sin. Christians, tell, let's, let us, let's tell our non-Christian friends here. What's the penalty of sin? The penalty of sin is death. But the gift of God is what? Eternal life through Jesus Christ. That's Romans 6, 23. Eternal life is the gift. What's the penalty? Eternal death. If God never turned the other cheek, if God always gave to everyone immediately what they deserved, we would all be in hell. So if you're not a Christian, you're saying, you know what, God is encouraging weakness. No, he's not. He's, in, he's actually giving you an opportunity to find mercy and not get what you deserve and what I deserve, namely hell. So let's recognize God's gentle, gentleness to us even as he's calling us and inviting us to be gentle to others. So hunger for a righteous honesty and a righteous gentleness so that you may make peace wherever God sends you. So we have number one, righteous honesty. Number two, righteous gentleness. And lastly, number three, a righteous love. Hunger for a righteous love. Let's go to the last verses here, guys. Verses 43 to 48. Hunger for a righteous love. Look at verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, does the Bible say anywhere in the Old Testament, hate your enemy? No. Not at least specifically like that. Hate your enemy. Um, there are verses in Psalms where it talks about hating his enemies and there's ways of thinking through that, but Jesus is gonna say something radical here, but it's still not contradicting the Old Testament. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but what does Jesus command? I tell you what, love your enemies and the second command, what? Pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. There's a two, two commands for you. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Can you pray for those who persecute you? Is that, is that impossible to do like physically or um, for, for you? Is it, I mean, one of the easiest things to do in life is pray, right? As someone's persecuting you, as someone's hurting you, you can pray. You can pray right there. Pray for them and pray for their good. Pray for their joy in God. Pray for their repentance. Love them. And if you don't love them, pray for them and pray for yourself, right? Pray that you would love your enemies. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? Look at verse 40, uh, it, where are we at? 44 or 45. Why should you pray for those who persecute you? Why should you love your enemies? What's the answer? What's the purpose? Verse 45. So that what? You may be children of your Father in heaven. So why? Because the reason why you should love your enemies and pray for your persecutors is so that you will be children of your Father in heaven. Right now, you should have some theological flags going up in your head, right? Is this saying, is this saying that if you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, you'll earn your salvation? No, the Bible doesn't say that. Is it saying here, okay, so if, if it's not talking about meriting salvation, I mean, he says, if you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, you'll be children of God. It almost could sound like work salvation. Couldn't it sound like it at least? It does sound like it. We have to admit that. Let's admit that. It sounds like it. Now, we know other verses in the Bible, and even here, we know it can't be right because Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. In other words, they're bankrupt. They don't have love for their enemies. They don't pray for those who persecute you. And yet, if you're poor in spirit, you have the kingdom of God. So you don't earn it. You're hungering and thirsting for righteousness because you lack it. So he's not talking about earning it here. Then why, 
Why does it say that the purpose of loving your enemies is so that you may be children of your Father in heaven? If it's not works righteousness, why, why does Jesus say, love your enemies, pray for them, so that you'll be children of your Father in heaven? He gives us four answers in the verses, and this finishes our passage, okay? Four answers here on why, why when you love your enemies and you pray for those who persecute you, you may be children of your Father in heaven. First one is in verse 45. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the what? Unrighteous. Who does that? Who sends the sun to rise? God does. Who sends the rain? God. And he sends it on the good and the, the bad, the evil, right? So who loves their enemies? God. Who seeks to bless their enemies? God. And if you love and pray for your enemies who are persecuting you for righteousness' sake, you're acting like who? God. And that's what it means to be a child of God. Like father, like Son, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. It's not saying being a peacemaker means you're, you, you earn your way to heaven. Children act like their parents. Children look like their parents, right? And so if that's true, if God is a, if God's someone who loves his enemies, then you expect his children to love their enemies. This is just, this is ancient culture. If your dad was a baker and you're a son of your dad, guess what your job was going to be when you grew up? You're going to be a baker. If your dad was a farmer, you are a farmer. If your dad was, you know, what, so you were like father, like son in everything, really. Jesus was a carpenter. We call him a carpenter's son, right? But he was a carpenter. Why? Because Joseph was a carpenter, like father, like son. And if God is a lover of enemies, if God is a blesser of those who persecute and you do the same, guess what you are? A child of God. That takes supernatural grace. That takes saving grace. It takes the power of the Holy Spirit in you to do that. Okay, let's move on. There's a second reason here. Why, why, why should we love our enemies and why does it mean we're called children of God? Verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even tax collectors do the same? Now, tax collectors here, that's just, every tax collector was just known as being corrupt. It would be like saying, um, let me put it in today's vernacular. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even... Um, Human traffickers do the same? Don't human tra traffickers, don't they love those who love them? Don't, what, what difference is it between you as a child of God and a human trafficker? Nothing. If you, if you only love those who love you, you're just like a tax collector or a human trafficker. You don't need to have God to love those who love you. Everyone loves those who love them. That's not being a child of God. Again, that's why Jesus says, if you love your enemies, you will be children of God because children of God are not like tax collectors or human traffickers. There's forgiveness for them too if they repent and trust in Jesus. But the point here is those who repent and trust in Jesus are different. Verse 47, again, another same, similar idea of verse 46. And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even Gentiles, and that's godless Gentiles, Gentiles who don't believe in the true God, don't they do the same? In other words, brothers and sisters, look up here. If you only love those who love you, and if you only greet those who you feel familiarly close to, does that prove that you're a child of God? If you only do those things, does that prove you're distinct from, from those who are not children of God? No, it doesn't. You know what shows that you're a child of God? When you love your enemies. When you pray for them when they persecute you. When you go an extra mile with them when you give them your coat, 
when they ask for your shirt, when you give to them because you care about them even when they're taking advantage of you, when you turn the other cheek when they insult you. That's what children of God do. That's different. But if you're going to come here in a church gathering and only greet those who you want to greet, who, who greet you, what, what's different about that? That's not salt. That's not light. That's not divinely, supernaturally empowered. That's natural. That's earthly. That's not children of God. And so Jesus closes with verse 48. Therefore, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now we stumble all over the perfect part. So let me just change the translation here. Not change it in a way that's not like changing the Bible, but another way of faithfully translating the text. Be complete as your Father in heaven is complete. Be mature as your Father in heaven is mature. Those are two other ways of translating the Greek word. Let me put it in the context of this whole love thing. Love completely as your Father in heaven loves completely. He doesn't just love his own. He doesn't just love his friends. He loves his enemies. Love completely as your father, because you're a son, you're a child, you're like him. Love completely as your father in heaven loves completely. So application, church, church member, love your enemies. Christian, love your enemies. Pray for them as they persecute you for righteousness sake. Bless them as they curse you in your attempts at peacemaking from a compassionate and pure heart. Press on with joy. Here's what I'm saying, brothers and sisters. Rejoice in God when they oppose you. Joy in God spills over in love for them. Okay, I'm, I'm grabbing Jesus' words from, from Matthew 5, 11 and 12. Rejoice when people persecute you. That's the beginning of the chapter. And now he's saying, um, love them when they persecute you. I'm taking the rejoice in, those, rejoice in God and love them. How do you put those two things together? My joy in God when someone's persecuting me will spill over in love for them. If I'm not loving them, then my joy is not in who? God. You see how those two things go together? You can't rejoice in God and not love them. That doesn't work. You can't, you can't rejoice in God and not love them. And you can't love them in a supernatural way and pray for them if you're not rejoicing in God. It takes a supernatural changed heart that God gives a joy in him that only God sovereignly can give. It takes a changed heart to love your enemies because you rejoice in God when they persecute you. So church family, now I'm gonna apply it in a little different way here. So I want you church family to look at each other. Maybe that's a little weird here in this case, in this situation, but church family, think about each other, even if you're not gonna look at each other. Look at each other, I want you, I want you to hear this as you look at each other or think about each other. Love one another when opposed by each other. Okay, get that. I'm talking about church family. I'm not talking about with non-Christians. Love one another when you're opposed by each other. It happens in churches when we're not in our right minds. There are gonna be, there's gonna come a day, live here long enough and spend time enough, enough time with me, there's gonna come a time where you're gonna rebuke me for sin. And if I'm, in my, if I'm proud and defensive in that moment, I will oppose you. And you're gonna need to love me anyways. You're gonna need to pray for me as I persecute you. And say, how dare you? I'm the pastor. Don't you realize I don't sin? Which I wouldn't say that, but you know. Or I'm the pastor. Don't you read First Timothy three? Are you saying I'm not qualified anymore? Are you saying I should leave the church? Fine, I'm going to leave the church. I'm, I could. I might try to. If I'm not in my right mind, I might put the full court press. And you know what? You need to love me anyways. You need to. You need to pray for me as I persecute you. And we need to do that for each other. That's the only way this church is really going to have God's joy and divine love flowing in this church. Not by ignoring sin, but by confronting it and loving each other when it gets difficult. 
It has to get difficult at times. So what I'm saying is love one another in the battle and fight, each, fight for each other in the tension, not with each other. So I need to realize when you're confronting me in my sin that you're not fighting with me, you're fighting for me. And if I'm confronting you in your sin with humility, I'm not fighting with you, I'm fighting for you. And so we need to realize that when we're as a church family. All right, let me close here. Hunger for a righteous honesty. That's the first one, right? Righteous honesty. What's second? A righteous what? Gentleness. And thirdly, a righteous what? Love. Hunger for righteous honesty, gentleness, and love so that you may make peace, so that you make peace wherever God sends you. Jesus was gentle, but he was not weak. Jesus was the most masculine man in in human history. He never took personal vengeance, but submitted himself to the insults of others and even being executed in order to serve and save those, those of us who were not gentle, those of us who personally retaliate and are sinfully vengeful and bitter and spiteful and arrogant. Jesus was gentle. Aren't you glad Jesus was gentle and did not call legions of angels when they were persecuting him? Where would our salvation be? Where would we be if Jesus was not gentle? And did Jesus love his enemies? Did he pray for them? He didn't only pray for them, he died for them. On the cross he said, Father, forgive them for they what? No, no, not what they do. He's praying for them. He's loving them and he's dying for them. Jesus loved them perfectly just like the Father in heaven. And we are God's enemies. We were God's enemies before God saved us. Jesus loved you perfectly when you were his enemy. Jesus calls his people now to love completely because you have been loved completely. You don't earn, your lo- you don't earn God's love by loving. You love because you have first been loved. It's not earning merit or works righteousness. It's a gift of God's grace. It is really the gospel. Now, when Jesus loved his enemies, did Jesus rejoice in God in his love for his enemies? Hebrews 12.2 says, um, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, that's King James Version, the author and finisher of our, of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Jesus endured the cross for the what set before him? The joy. Rejoice in persecution. Rejoice when people oppose you. Because when you're rejoicing in God with the joy set before you. Jesus said, great is your reward where? In heaven. The joy set before you. When you rejoice in the joy set before you, you're able to love your enemies and pray for them. Jesus did that for us. Brothers and sisters, this is the good news. If you're not a Christian, let me just close with this. If you're not a Christian, the good news is God is love. God loves his enemies. God loves sinners. We were made in God's image. If you're not a Christian, you and I were made in God's image. We deserve God's wrath for our sins. um, God sent Jesus because of his love for his enemies. God sent Jesus to turn the other cheek, to be spat upon, to be hit, to be killed on the cross. And then he takes the judgment of God on himself for our sins. And then he rises from the dead on the third day so that everyone who repents from their sin and trusts in Jesus. That's what God's telling you to do if you're not a Christian. Turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. Everyone who does that, they will receive the never stopping, never giving up, unbreakable, always and forever love. That's what Sally Lloyd-Jones calls the steadfast love of God that never gives up. Your blood has washed away my sins. Jesus, thank you. 
The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemies, now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. Brothers and sisters, my call is that you would ask God. If I have to give you one application, here's the one application. Ask God to fill you with joy in Christ and your heavenly reward. Ask, that's it. Ask God to fill you with joy in him in persecution. Because when you do that, you will speak honestly, you will respond gently, and you will love steadfastly as a peacemaker. If you don't ask God to fill you, what did Jesus say? Hunger, uh, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be what? Filled. Filled. If you don't ask, if you fail to ask God to fill you with this joy, you will love only until it gets tough. And once it gets tough, you'll get self-centered, and you won't take the risky, you won't do the risky love action. If you fail to ask God to fill you, you will reflect Satan more than reflecting your Father in heaven. You'll display Satan in your life more than displaying God. And if you fail to ask God to fill you, you will shrink in joy, you will shrink in love, and you will shrink in spreading the goodness of God to others. But if you get on your knees, I mean, this is not hard. It just takes humility to ask God to fill you, right? That's all I'm telling you to do, just ask him. You're like, it's so hard to love my neighbors. It's hard to love my enemies. Okay, I get that it's hard. But if you fail, if you succeed in asking God at least to fill you, you will grow, God will fill you, and you will grow in honesty and in gentleness and in God's steadfast love. You will look like your Father in heaven, and you will, and God will fill you with a contagious, life-giving joy. God, our Father, shows up and shows off for the spread of his gospel in Southeast Los Angeles and in the world. And God shows up and shows off through you, through Bethany Baptist Church. Where's God in Southeast LA? Where's God in Bellflower? He's right here in you. And he'll show himself to the world through you because you are his children. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those who crave it and cry for it desperately because it is these people who will be filled. Let's pray.